Our lesson this morning is Mark chapter 12. We return to our study as we work our way, as we plod our way uh, through the gospel according to Mark. Uh, it's on page 848 in your pew Bible, uh, but it's Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. I remember years ago there was a movie starring Matthew Broderick that, that was, uh, and, and you can watch it today, it's so, so tragically antiquated, but it was a movie called War Games. And it was all about uh, this computer uh, that was set up that would, would, would play war games, would strategize and run through all the what-ifs of war uh, to see you know, which direction war could go. Could you actually win a world war? And the message behind the movie was a world war is not winnable and, and this type of thing. It was a, a Hollywood moment for, uh, for military strategy. But the, uh, the interesting thing was that this computer uh, just sat there and ran what-ifs, what-ifs all the time coming up with hypothetical scenarios and, and whether this nation strikes this nation and this happens first. And what was particularly funny about the movie is it was getting the computer to figure out the what-ifs of a game of tic-tac-toe that ultimately bring it down. Spoiler alert. But playing war games is, is, is basically that. It's coming up with hypotheticals about who would win a war. But that's not the only way that hypotheticals are used. And we find hypotheticals used when it comes to evangelism and ministry in a very dangerous way. Hypotheticals actually use as an instrument of war. And that's what we have in front of us today. Hypotheticals posed to Jesus for the purpose of waging war with him. And I want us to look at that and I want us to see what is being asked, how Jesus responds, and indeed uh, what that teaches us in that Mark has recorded this, that we might be blessed and strengthened by it. Let's read God's word together. We find in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. This is God's word. And the Sadducees came to Jesus. They say, there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the, rex- in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Well, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong." Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, I I begin by praying, Lord, that the very final words of our Savior to the Sadducees in that moment, Father, would not be spoken against us, Lord God. That it shall not be the case that we are quite wrong. Lord, that we would listen to the teaching of You who truly are the good teacher. You who have taught us in your life, in your ministry, and in your resurrection, Lord, that we we would know our Heavenly Father, for He's made Himself known in You, Lord Jesus. 
I pray that your word would dwell in us richly. And we praise you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, in the winter time we see all die. But your word, it endures forever. And for it we are truly thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now this is an interesting hypothetical that the Sadducees have come to put before Jesus. And they really pour it on, don't they? And we think about this whole issue, the seven that gets brought up, the seven brothers uh, and, the, and the one wife there. Uh, we think about that really at the way that they would have considered that number, the same way when Peter came to Jesus and said, is, is it enough that I should forgive someone seven times? It's a number of completion, like the number of the days of the week. We find uh, the, the seven brothers, that, that's a good round number. That's where it, it comes to a stop. And the Sadducees take it to that extreme saying, this woman, I don't know what how she, her cooking was or, or her lifestyle, I don't know what it was, but she managed to bury seven men and then she herself died of exhaustion, I guess. <laughs> but they come to him posing a hypothetical not for the purpose of learning. Let's, let's put that right in front of us at the very beginning. You have to ask yourselves, why are they asking this question? Do they truly want to know? Do they have a friend who is on their sixth husband and, and she's really wondering if, if she's going to have to choose from the previous six or if she gets to keep the one she has now when she gets to heaven? There is, there is no legitimate reason for them to ask this question other than to trip and trick Jesus. What they're bringing up is the, the law of the leveret marriage. Uh, the, the word actually comes from the word meaning brother-in-law. And we find that back in Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6 says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and shall perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This, this is that the family line would continue. That the, the premature death of, of a husband would not preclude that family line from being continued. We see this, as a matter of fact, that that text uh, goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 25 to talk about the idea of the kinsman redeemer also. That is, if the brother or a close family member uh, will not redeem that relationship, then the kinsman redeemer, one who is close, uh, is given the option to step in and do the right thing. And we see this to be taught and to be lived out uh, incredibly in the book of Ruth. Remember, it was Ruth uh, that her husband and his brother both died. Uh, her mother-in-law had no one to... As a matter of fact, her husband has died as well. They have no means uh, to continue the family line. But it was Boaz who comes and marries Ruth. And as Boaz marries Ruth, they, they give birth to Obed, to Jesse, to King David. This is the family line of Jesus. And in there, the kinsman redeemer principle is taught. So we, we see this wonderful uh, provision of God that the family line of the righteous would continue. But here's what happens. This, this wonderful provision of God becomes a, a tool in the hands of those who would seek to bring, a, again, a challenge to Jesus. And we find this challenge escalating. Right here we see an escalation of the oppression because the, the battlefront draws closer. Uh, you think about, again, to, to draw on a military analogy, as you approach the, the front, uh, the shells become more frequent. Uh, the battle rages louder. 
uh, the danger is more significant. And what we find is the battlefront is drawing close. For remember, this is the final week. This is the week of the passion of our Lord. He, he is marching steadfastly to the cross on Friday. And so as the battle draws ever closer, the oppression escalates. And we also see not only is the oppression escalating, but it's growing more and more desperate. The crowds, as they listen to Jesus, they, they stand amazed at His teaching. But the religious leaders growing more and more desperate. We just read about that they are plotting on how to kill Jesus. He is processed into uh, Jerusalem. He has cleansed the temple and He is now preaching there in the temple and they are looking to find a way that they might either have Him arrested and executed or even take Him away and have Him killed quietly without drawing the ire of the crowd. So we see the oppression escalating and we see the Sadducees return into the, the story. Remember the Sadducees. You often speak of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees we just discussed uh, last week Last time we were in Mark, this week we're looking at the Sadducees. The Sadducees were those who really rejected all things supernatural, particularly the resurrection. They rejected the resurrection, and so they're coming to challenge Jesus on that very point. They rejected the supernaturalism of it. They rejected angels and angelic creatures, and they they had reason to take issue with Jesus. They didn't like His theology. But they also didn't like his practice either, for he had just come and cleansed their temple. Keep in mind, this was the party of the, of the high priest, the high priestly party. It was, in their opinion, their temple. And this Nazarene, keep in mind, this, this man, could anything good come out of Nazareth? This Nazarene, can you hear the scorn and the derision in the way that they would have spoken of that, this Nazarene coming and declaring that their temple needed cleansing. This dirty man coming into their midst and saying that this place is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so what the Sadducees do is they join ranks in an unlikely alliance with the Pharisees. Again, they are unlikely accomplices. They disagreed in so much And they openly rejected the tradition of the Pharisees in so many ways, but they agree that Jesus has to be killed. And so this necessity makes them unlikely uh, allies in this battle. Now think about it. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was the Pharisees and the scribes that came to Jesus and were asking Him questions. And does anybody recall off the top of your head, the last time we saw this text in Mark, you can even cheat and look back a little bit in Mark 12, what did the Pharisees ask Jesus about? What did they challenge him about? Taxes. Very good. Taxes. Always a good one. Yeah, we can get get people riled up about that. But keep in mind, it was the Pharisees and the scribes that came to Jesus and they challenged him on the taxes. That is, questioning him about obligations in this world, hoping to trip him up. Obligations in this world, paying taxes. He's going to make somebody mad. He's either going to make Caesar mad because he says you don't have to pay taxes or he's going to make the people mad because he's saying you do have to pay taxes. And again, our Savior in such wisdom says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God's. Well, now the Pharisees, they come and they attack him about the reality of the next world. Talking to him about heaven. Talking to him about what they consider to be the absurd doctrine of resurrection. If you pause for just a minute and we think about this, this axis of evil, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as they came together, 
uh, to strategize about getting rid of Jesus. And they were talking about uh, whether they should pay the obligation of taxes, uh, whether uh, there would be a, an ongoing obligation when you get to heaven uh, with regard to being married or not being married. But what's really amazing and really shows them to be the hypocrites they are is they didn't meet the obligations that were before them. Mark chapter 10, Jesus speaking about marriage. They came to him and they asked about the idea of whether or not you should give a certificate when you divorce your wife and, and showed that they had a very, very low view of the obligation, the responsibility, and the sanctity of marriage. They were asking Jesus about divorce and, and how they could get around those obligations. In Mark chapter 7, if we go back to you know several, several chapters before, uh, we, we saw where Jesus spoke out against what they were doing when it came to taking care of their families. There was this practice called korban. Korban means that something is declared to be set apart for the use uh, within the within the church, within the temple, within uh, the ministry. And to declare something korban, to declare funds korban, means it could not be spent otherwise. And so many of these who are challenging Jesus would have even refused to help their mother and father in need because their money was korban. You see, they were looking to get out of all the obligations that they didn't like. And now they're coming and challenging Jesus on these very things. Whether it regards this world or the next. So they bring up the issue of marriage here. They bring up the issue of marriage. And Jesus says, you know, you don't know the truth. You don't know the truth of God. You don't know the truth of Scripture. And they bring up this issue of the law of the lever at marriage. Now, the law, uh, this law was all about the propagation of a family name. It was about the continuation of a family line, the preserving of the line, a contingency plan in case of death. God is so gracious to provide for these things. And He says, I, I want to be a God to you and to your children after you. And He makes this law uh, within the nation of Israel for the preservation of His people. But now, think of it this way when it comes to heaven. And see, this is a real easy place to get sidetracked in this. So I want to speak to it briefly before we, uh, we continue on. But this whole idea of, of what does marriage look like in heaven? I've been blessed to be married to my bride for nearly 28 years now. And, and, and I think about the idea of, can heaven really be heaven if I'm not married to her? Well, my marriage to her will, will be a fact through all eternity. But, but here's the thing. It's just like so many folks who ask about heaven. I had a wonderful insurance uh, agent that was a dear friend of mine, and he was just all concerned uh, that there would not be fishing in heaven. Well, he, he read in Revelation that there'd be no more sea, and so he was just all concerned that there would be no fishing in heaven. And, and I spoke to him about the new heaven, the new earth. I talked to him about the symbolism of the sea and all that meant. I said, but, but keep this in mind. There will be no mourning, no grief. There will be no uh, hurt feelings about the lack of anything in heaven. That that which heaven is makes the blessings of this world pitch black pale in comparison. We, we think about this idea of, of going uh, into uh, eternity. There will be no death. And in, in eternity, there will be no need to continue to propagate our children and children after us. That's the thing of this world. And in the new creation, we see that we will live eternally. And so that amazing gift of God of marriage has really been given to us specifically for this world. Such a rich and wonderful blessing uh, that we will know and that we will appreciate forever. And what a wonderful thing it will be uh, that my bride and I 
will be privileged to both stand there at the throne of God and praise Him together. But marriage has also been given that we might understand a bit about what eternity is. We find that in Ephesians chapter 5.32 as he's talking about husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. And that whole discussion about how husbands have been called to a, a, a high level of responsibility when it comes to marriage and the marriage relationship. And Paul goes on to say this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This, this, this whole issue is, is what the, the Sunday school class and the covenant class, Greg's teaching about, about the nature of marriage, that it is this wonderful picture uh, of eternity. It's this picture of Christ giving Himself for His church. So when we get to heaven, the issue of marriage is not going to be something we go, oh, well, I really miss marriage. Oh, no, my relationship with Carol will be untarnished, unstained by sin, and our attention will be fully focused and positioned upon the throne of grace. But the bigger issue is this heaven itself. Not whether or not who's going to be married to who in heaven. That was just this convoluted hypothetical they put there trying to trip Jesus up. But the issue is about heaven. And Jesus turns to him and says, you don't know the truth. You don't know the truth about God. You don't know the truth of Scripture. But you need to know this. The presupposition of Jesus coming into this is absolutely 180 degrees from what the Sadducees were coming at. Of course, Jesus proclaimed, believed, and is the proof of that heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. It's not symbolic of anything else. It's, it's not this idea that, you know, it's just something, it's a, it's a concept that's meant to make us behave in this world. Heaven is a real place. John 14. You remember Jesus in the upper room? He was talking to His disciples. They didn't understand fully what was going on. He turns to him. He says, I know your hearts are troubled, but don't let them continue that way. You believe in God, believe in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. You hear Him saying, there are really those places before God. If it wasn't true, I'd tell you. He says, and now I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. I've heard that preached on so many times, as have you. And the way it typically gets preached on is this, wow, Jesus has been preparing a place for you for 2,000 years. Can you imagine how nice it'll be? He's been at hard work preparing a place for you uh, for all that time. Imagine how remarkable it would be. That misses the point. What Jesus was telling His disciples was not like I would tell you if you needed to come spend the night with me. I'll go and make a place for you. What does that mean? I'm going to go put out some clean sheets. I'm going to make sure you got towels. I'm going to make sure you got a key. You know how to get in. Everything's set and the air conditioner is ready to go. And we'll spruce it up a little bit. That's how I go to prepare a place for you. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, it's so much more significant than that. For what He is saying is this, if I do not go, then you have no place. I go to prepare the place. The place has to be made for you. And I go that where I am you may be. It was in His going that we have a place with God the Father for all eternity. A real place that where He is we will be also. And it is a real destination. It is a real place that many will go. A real destination for some. This is the the part of, of this situation. Of those who were listening to Jesus, there were many who would know the reality of heaven in joy. 
but all would know the reality of heaven. There would be many who heard the sound of Jesus' voice that day that would know the reality of heaven too late. They would know it to be a place that they have no place. They have no place with God the Father. Matthew chapter 25, I won't read the whole passage for you, but I encourage you uh, to revisit this, even as you do daily reading, to, to revisit this passage as we are mindful of the short period of life that we have in this world. Matthew chapter 25 talks about the Son of Man coming in glory. Jesus is speaking, and He says, The king will say to those who are on the right, he separated uh, those from the right and his left, sheep on his right, goats on his left. This is not livestock, these are people. And the king says to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. We know those words. And we also know that that many will say to him, I never saw you naked or homeless are hungry, and Jesus says, as much you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And He invites them in to glory. But in that very same day, there will be those who, who had no compassion, who had no sympathy, who did not have the heart of Christ in them, who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will not know heaven. And Jesus says, truly, as you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me, and they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. This is the truth that stands in contradiction to what the Sadducees were arguing about. Heaven is a real place, and it is a place that has been made ours through Jesus and through Him alone. As we get ready for a new year, I encourage you to to think about not the hypotheticals that they're contriving to talk about. Wow, that's kind of interesting to speculate if if a, a man has two wives because one passes and they're both Christians, who's going to be whose husbands and wife in heaven? That's not the question. The question is, indeed, are you horribly, badly mistaken today as were the Sadducees about living in light of the reality of heaven? Do you live as though heaven and eternity is, is really real? Or do you just give it a moment of service on Sunday morning? The truth is everyone will live forever. Jesus brings up this passage. He says, it was in the book of Moses, the, the burning bush that did not get consumed, where God identified himself as, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. It's interesting that he brings this up and he raises it to them. Because here's the thing. As God is speaking, He is speaking to Moses in the bush that is not consumed, this bush that continues to live even though that fire, even though fire seems to be uh, all, all around it. it. It's continuing to live. And He says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. And as Jesus quotes this, we need to know that at the time of Moses, these men no longer walked the world. But those men continued to live because they trusted in the promise of God. And it says that God is the God of the living. For Abraham, He lives. Isaac, He lives. Jacob, He lives, as do all the saints who have gone before. And so He is dismissing the premise upon which the Sadducees are building their their false hypothetical situation. He says, you don't even believe in heaven, so your question doesn't make sense. But heaven is real. He says, you are badly badly mistaken. That word literally could be translated, you've deceived yourselves. 
or you have made a hopeless blunder. The question to be answered, brothers and sisters, is, is not the, the interesting hypotheticals of eternity. For so many of them will, will puzzle us until the day that we see it with our own eyes. But the question we have to ask ourselves today is, do, am I living today with the reality that a place has been prepared for me by Jesus Christ Himself? Why? Because He died for my sins. Why? Because I could not pay for them myself. And the confession of sin that we did in worship, it means something because I know that I am confessing sins that Christ has deliberately paid for that I would have a place. Because you need to understand that the unholy has no place before God. But the holy does because Christ has made us that way. It's that grand exchange that we need to go into this new year praising God for, that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we would be the righteousness of God in Him. This morning, this morning, are you badly mistaken? Or do you take great joy in knowing that me, my wife, my family, my friends. I rejoice in as much as I know my heart and the hearts of others that I rejoice in knowing that heaven is real and heaven is mine. For Christ Jesus has made it so. Amen. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that your faithfulness is so amazing. Your love is so great. My Heavenly Father, forgive us for the distractions that, that take us down paths, Father, of, of unlikely and unprofitable speculation. But Lord, may we return to Christ. May we return to the gospel of knowing that our inheritance is rightly wrath and condemnation. But in Christ Jesus, we have been made heirs of the King. And heaven, the presence of God, the glory of our salvation is ours. And Lord, we rejoice in that. Father, I pray that no one within the sound of my voice this day will leave this place mistaken. But Lord, we would know because our Savior has spoken and that we have been saved by the love of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who, who live this day, that we, we in Christ, shall live forever. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.